Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to the first Local Zero of 2023. It's Matt here. And Becky. (laughs) Happy New Year, Matt. Yeah, Happy New Year and here we go again. Coming up in this episode, we'll hear from Hannah Jewell, Campaigns and Policy Officer at Climate Emergency UK. It's going to be yet another fascinating chat and an episode that's packed full of practical, concrete things that you can do locally, wherever you live, to drive climate up the agenda for your local authority. Before we get into it, our usual plea, please do subscribe to Local Zero in your podcast player so that our episodes are automatically delivered to your phone or device, putting you amongst the first to get to listen. And chances are, if you're enjoying Local Zero, someone you know will enjoy it too. So please think who that person is. There can be more than one and let them know about us. They'll thank you and so will we. And remember, you can contact us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter or email localzeropod at gmail.com. Absolutely. And I think before long, we're probably going to have to create a Mastodon account as well. Uh, there's all sorts going on in this space. But for now, you can, you can, of course, find us on Twitter. So, Becky, before we go any further, did you have a good Christmas and a happy new year? I had a fantastic Christmas and, uh, and new year. It was it was a really lovely and welcome break. Good. Not a relaxing time, no, but, of course it but wasn't really <laughs> wonderful with family. Yeah. <laughs> How about yourself, well, Matt? Yeah, it was similar. I mean, I racked up a lot of... Uh, a lot of road miles, seeing family and friends, and actually, kind of going back to previous discussions we've had around EVs, we're driving mm-hmm. a plug-in hybrid, and actually, I was I was pretty thankful of it not being pure electric, actually, because we were in some seriously busy parts of the UK, getting around the, the Midlands, and yeah, so uh, maybe one year we'll, we'll we'll try it, but I, I wouldn't wouldn't. Wouldn't be a relaxing experience, I don't think. No, and actually, my mum sent me um, uh, an article from the Times. I think it was yesterday or the day before. Yeah. Uh, r- someone reflecting on why they are trying desperately to get rid of their EV and mm. all the problems that they've had with these longer journeys. Yeah. But yes, maybe another episode uh, to come back to in the future. Definitely. And I mean, any New Year's resolutions? Are, are you are you hopeful about twenty twenty three? Is there anything that you're wanting to get done, particularly on the climate and green front, or because obviously you're you're in a completely new location? 
location. You have moved, you've upped sticks, you're in Cornwall, you've got a new home and new job and all sorts. I do, I do. It's very exciting. Uh, so lots of stuff going on. I would say, do you know, I've, I've really been reflecting, Matt, on on how things have changed in my life um, over the past five to ten years. Mm. I mean, aside, you know, kids aside. But I used to really Kids enjoy... aside. <laughs> yeah, kids, kids aside. They're not disruptive Let's at all. They don't change a great deal. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, this is probably partly influenced by that. But I used to do a lot of traveling uh, for work. I mean, mm. you know, a lot of I'd, I'd go to a lot of conferences. I would really love that kind of interaction and, and getting around. And what I've realized is that, you know, that's still great. But I think COVID's changed a lot of that. And, and I'm really excited about doing more practical stuff on the ground in my local community. It's something that I feel like I've been missing for a long time. Yeah. And so I'm really, really looking forward to digging in, whether it's looking at kind of joining a community gardens. Um, I was chatting with someone yesterday about kind of local volunteering that, that can be done. So kids are starting to get that bit older. And I think that's going to be something that we look to focus on this year. Like how can we really sort of have a much stronger role in that local community? Yeah, I, I, I'd agree. I mean, a, a few years ago, I had the same feeling. Hence, I, you know, I connected in with my uh, local uh, environmental charity through South Seeds. And, and that's been a really important counterweight to a lot of the, the work that, you know, you and I have done in terms of, you know, in, in academia, whether it's uh, <laughs> your, your classic kind of academic publications or working much more with policy and industry. It's actually getting to grips with real people in a real, you know, world environment, in a real community and figuring out how can we get stuff done. And as soon as you start doing that, you start to see a whole host of other opportunities, but also barriers. Um, but, you know, if I'm honest, j just getting that sense of satisfaction that you're kind of shifting the dial somewhere like in the real world and seeing you know a community change direction and trying I guess to translate some of the stuff that that we know a lot of the, the lessons we've learned through this pod and actually you know put that into practice so I'd agree that's a that's a really good New Year's okay. resolution. Any any on your end? What are your family? Well, up to? I don't know. I'm, I'm maybe going to put this into the hopes category. Um, so I, I was reflecting a lot on the, the podcast we recorded just before Christmas, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed. Actually, it was great to have uh, uh, most of us there. Obviously, you were you were dialing in, but it was really good to have us all in the in the kind of recording booth there. And there was this sense of it's industrial action in reaction to the cost of living crisis and this sitting alongside a much broader ecological and climate crisis and it feels like all roads are leading to uh, a different ta a different way of tackling the this kind of omni crisis this this uh, omni shambles as, as shall we say um and this idea that this industrial action could pr provide a plinth for tackling the climate crisis in a different way, a communal response to a shared problem, and one that yields society-wide benefits. And I just think the way that we've been going about the climate crisis and trying to shove a kind of round peg in a square hole by saying, look, we need to deal with this cross-cutting systemic problem by acting as individual consumers is, is just not the way to go about it. And I think this pod very much speaks to that. It's about local climate action working together to tackle this issue. And I just feel that something's coming in from uh, stage left in terms of industrial crisis and cost of living, which could really offer a springboard for 2023. And I think we're entering a brave new world now, and we have a general election coming up as well. And so the question mark is, well, how do you combine these two crises 
with a manifesto that can speak to both of those. And so I'm very excited about 2023 because I think all the big political parties and small political parties are going to have, have something to say on this. I think it's a really, yeah, it's a really, really interesting point. And for me, what really brings it together is this this idea of, of folk from very different walks of life or different... Um, you know, different career uh, career stages kind of coming together to support that transition. So the bringing together of industry with local businesses, with households, with local government, with national government, and getting a lot of that aligned. Because I tell you, it's been an absolute eye opener over the past just few months that I've been doing this in terms of like my house renovation. And I've not been overly focused on the sustainability aspects. Like I'm moving into a house that is fairly well insulated it's already double glazed like I'm not terrible on the kind of whole energy performance certificate rating right so I know you've had a a number of challenges that you've been tackling in in your home that we've talked about on the on the pod before with your double glazing and so on but oh yeah yeah don't don't remind me (laughs) let's not get into that but you do see (laughs) therapy and all sorts (laughs) you do see things from the point of view of how you actually could go about delivering this if you're trying to take that individualistic approach, right? If we're trying to take a market, a market-led approach where we just kind of put put incentives out there, expect people to to take this up, to deliver it on their own, to do all the research, to make all the decisions. And I just can't see that happening. So so the idea that industry is getting involved, that we're starting to see this kind of culmination of, of action from different players, I think is quite exciting. Mm-hmm. And I think that really neatly sort of segues into what we're covering today because we're you know we're talking about councils we're talking about their net zero strategies their their response to the climate crisis um we've got local elections coming up in may but there's a lot of stuff that kind of came out in the lead up to cop 26 in terms of we're going to go net zero by you know x or y year and the you know, climate emergency uk guest today digging into what these commitments are and ultimately you know, we, we talk a lot about uh, national government and national political parties, but really the government that we spend most of our time actually connecting with most is our local councils. Yeah. And actually a lot of the time we spend grumbling about stuff <laughs> or, or indeed, you know, uh, praising tends to be stuff that local councils have done, but we often we don't join the dots. So I think it's today's discussion will be really interesting. What are councils actually doing and who's doing the most, who's doing the least. Yeah, and, and of course, like in the context that you, they're in a real tough spot, right? Our councils are being squeezed yeah. in so many different directions. And, you know, I, I think back, I think it was to the second ever episode of Local Zero that we recorded. And if you haven't listened, go go listen to that. And it was with a focus on COVID, but I actually think that a lot of the points that we talked about still hold true when, we, when we're looking at this from a, from a cost of living crisis instead of a COVID crisis perspective. Yeah. But this idea that you know councils have been squeezed in so many different ways but ultimately they are where the rubber hits the road and i agree yeah they they have to have a say they have to be involved but it's often not within their kind of mandated um areas that they that no. they they need to be delivering on so it's a really really hard space uh, and and indeed they you know councils in terms of if you look at their direct powers often don't actually have a great deal of control over emissions. But when you take their influence in the round and their soft powers and where they can kind of nudge and push and, and encourage, um, and there was a report uh, undertaken on behalf of uh, the Climate Change Committee suggests that local authorities have influence over a third of emissions in, in their local areas. Uh, and in this context, 
83% of councils have declared a climate emergency. So all of them are trying, at least on paper, to make a positive change. But as you say, their ambition is there, their heart is in the right place, but the resources have been stripped and and shrunk over the years. So the, the Institute for Government, a couple of years out of date now, this analysis, but between 2010 and 2020, the uh, typical budget for an English council shrunk by 16%. Whilst, whilst what they needed to deliver probably grew about the same amount, right? So how can you do more with less? That's what I'd like to know. So, yeah, absolutely, really important to understand which councils are, are trying to do the most. And then the question is, well, what are they actually doing and how if well, their budgets are being... I'll tell you what, re- I'll tell you what really excites me with this. I- I'll tell you what excites me and then what worries me. <laughs> What really excites me is the convening power that councils can have. And we've seen that working with the Energy Rev program that funds this great podcast, working with the Prospering from the Energy Revolution program, Mm -hmm. and just looking to see how councils can be really situated in that space of bringing together a number of the key players in their local area to work together to drive change. You know, like... The NHS, the big industry, yeah. the the businesses, the the other kind of you know perhaps local local functions within there, and connecting through to community groups. So that really excites me. So sometimes it's like for me, it's thinking about not necessarily how can they do more with less, but how can how can they think about doing it in a smarter way, making sure that the onus isn't all on them, right? But they are acting in that in that way to bring together people in that local area. What really worries me is that. We see and we have seen very ambitious climate action plans, particularly from Glasgow. Glasgow's is extremely ambitious. Are we going to see that delivered on in the time frame that we have left? And that's what worries me. Yeah, uh, the political will is one thing, but the resource is uh, another thing. But your point about them being the linchpin for all these different stakeholders, I absolutely agree. So I think without further ado, we ought to hear from the experts. My name is Hannah Jewell and I'm the Campaigns and Policy Officer at Climate Emergency UK. Welcome, Hannah. Welcome to Local Zero. Absolutely fabulous to have you along and a happy 2023 to you. It's great to have Climate Emergency UK on the pod. We're big fans of what you've done and we're very much interested in local authorities and councils and their actions in terms of tackling the climate emergency. So I think first things first for our listeners Could you tell us a little bit about Climate Emergency UK, uh, what it does, why it was set up? Yeah, so Climate Emergency UK is a CIC, a community interest company, a micro-organisation, as I like to call us, because there's only three three of us. And basically, we were started by Kevin Freer, who is the uh, deputy leader of Lancaster Council, back in 2019, as all of the councils started to sort of announce their climate emergency declarations. And the original intention of Climate Emergency UK was just a simple way to sort of just collate every single climate emergency declaration as they came out and just put them up on a website. So if you wanted to know if your council had declared a climate emergency and you wanted to read their declaration, you could just go to the website and read it. And that was a sort of like simple initial starting point. And basically, each time that we've done something, another person has come along and said, I love that idea. Why don't I work with you to do this other idea? Um, so we've sort of built momentum over time. First, we started working with My Society, who are a great civic tech kind of organisation. Mm. They sort of use technology to grease the wheels of democracy. Uh, that's how I'd maybe describe their work. They do things like, uh, what do they know? 
And they came along and said, what if we just made that database really searchable so that you can come along and say, oh, I really want to know about this element of something. And you type it in and then you can see all of the climate emergency declarations that have said that. And then from there, we sort of like went on to the next piece of work, which we're going to talk about a lot today, which is the climate plan scorecards. Just a way to like take a snapshot of all of the different climate action plans and compare them to each other and see who's doing really well, who's not doing so well. That's such an interesting space to be working in. I can imagine it must be, I mean, my head's hurting already just thinking about like the sheer amount of data that you must be capturing and, you know, how great that you're actually pulling this together in a, in a usable and, and useful way. But this is a, this is quite a big project. I mean, how did, how did you get so excited and into this? Uh, you know, what was, what was your journey? Because it's a small organisation. I can imagine that you've got quite a lot of, um, you know, identity embedded within that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that my journey is one of a fan more than one of a of a participant. So I actually started um, about eight months ago, something like that, uh, several months back now. Um, but after the work on the climate plan scorecards had come out. And so I've been working instead on the climate action scorecards, which again, I'll sort of touch on a bit later. But I first started getting involved in sort of council climate action as a child, um, hilariously, uh, back in Wales um, when I was sort of 14, I started learning about climate change and just started engaging my local council and also uh, the Welsh government on climate issues. And I think it's always been a really interesting space to me because it's probably the most easy to influence space just because lots of people don't understand it. The scale of people wanting to engage with it is just simply smaller. Um, but it's, despite being like very small, it's like super influential. Councils can influence up to a third of emissions, according to the CCC, which is amazing. And it comes from, you know, the very basic, very direct stuff. How do they heat their buildings? You know, how do they keep the lights on? All the way up to the kind of place shaping stuff and how they engage their local community. And I just think that's like, like a really, really useful and like brilliant thing that councils can do. Yeah. So I started there and then I worked supporting other people to engage their local councils and then came across this job and was like, I love data. I really want to do this thing where also I'm working with local people um, to kind of like open up this world of councils to the wider public and also support councils to take mm. further action themselves. Yeah, and I think for me, I've been involved in this space for a while now, but it, it, it struck me that Maybe if we go back 10 or 15 years, councils were very much kind of at the forefront of a lot of this climate action. But it was kind of back in back in a time when uh, maybe they were better resourced and they had the kind of the, the personnel and the, the capital funds to make investments. And then, then we saw the kind of 2010s period and austerity and, and this start to kind of uh, be peeled back and they're going to go back to their kind of bread and butter services. And then all of a sudden COP26 comes along. And then these councils, just one after the other, and I remember, Becky, you and I, kind of our heads spinning at the time in Glasgow, they were just coming out with, almost trying to outdo one another, you know, well, actually, we could do net zero uh, sooner and better and faster and quicker and cheaper. Um, and that, I guess, is possibly the inspiration here, is it not? That there was so, we needed somebody, some organisation to pause and say, wow, what just happened? Uh, is, is that kind of the inspiration initially? Yeah, definitely. Like a big part of it is, as you said, councils do sort of like to outdo each other. They like to compare and say, wow, I'm kind of the, the best, uh, best of this bunch. And at the moment, like we, you know, before Climate Emergency was here, and I think there are other really great people working in this space as well now, but before kind of that movement of looking at the sort of bigger picture, there was like a lot of, uh, we think we're doing well, but we don't really know. Uh, 
you know, we're doing well given our circumstances, but what we know is just our circumstances and not really what that compares to for the wider thing. And what we really wanted to do was like have that little bit of perspective, that little bit of that wider picture. And so we we decided to make these council climate scorecards. So the first ones, as I said, the first ones are kind of plan scorecards. And what they're doing then is like writing a, an objective list of metrics and every single council has to like compare to that objective list of metrics. And yeah, that does mean some people get to to brag about how good their plans are, but also, you know, say you're maybe in the middle of a list of all of the councils, you can look at the people who are three steps ahead of you and say, you know, what do they have that we don't have sometimes, or what do they not have, but they're doing anyway? Um, how are they getting those gears in motion? But but initially, this was very focused on plans and strategy, like what, what we are going to do, not necessarily what we have done. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that, that kind of trails this, I think, climate the climate movement and also specifically the council climate movement is always operating on a bit of a sign curve where you see these real big peaks of interest and then you kind of like get into the work and sometimes there's a little bit of a trough and then it comes back up and you get a bigger peak. And the first move, this move of the climate emergency declarations that all started coming out in about 2018, 2019, that was really focused on plans. It was really focused on setting that 2019 target. It's also like more specifically about targets even than plans that like, what is this big headline that we can have? And the thing that comes after the big headline is the plan, which is like, maybe we can do this. This is the way that we can do this. And then you get the really important bit, but the way harder bit. And that's the action. Like, how are we actually going to do this? How are we actually going to afford this? Is this feasible? Uh, Halfway down, are we hitting our targets? Uh, what else do we need to do to get things in place? What other new opportunities have we have we got now? So this all I mean, this sounds it's very exciting and it's it's yeah, I can completely see how you can set a target and that's the easy bit. But then actually building it into that plan and then looking at that delivery mechanism is, is much harder. I'm just wondering, can you give us maybe like a few examples of areas? Cause cause we're talking about these kind of broad, you know, um climate emergency declarations, net zero, you know, targets. But what does that really translate to? What are the sorts of things we're seeing councils talking about doing? Yeah, um, good question. I think that it's quite a hard question in a way because there are so many different things that people commit to doing that councils commit to doing. The sort of targets that they might set and the things that they need implementation are things like, oh, we want to increase uh, tree cover by 3% across our city council. And then... You know, that's the first step. It's like, oh, that means that we'll be, you know, like I heard the other day, London is technically a forest. It's got high enough tree cover to be technically a forest. Wow. Um, So another city might say, we want to also be technically a forest. We want to get above 20% tree cover. That means that we need to plant so-and-so number of trees. The next step then obviously is like, you need the strategy of like, where are we going to plant the trees, where they're actually going to grow. And then you actually get the delivery, which is like, oh, we've planted the trees and now we're watering them. And we are spending the money in the right place uh, to make sure that the trees are in the right place and that they work well and that they're not going to cut be cut down in two years. So those are the kind of like little things. Basically, if you can think of something, if you can think of like an area of climate, whether it be transport or waste or perhaps governance and like investment, councils touch every single piece of that. So the number of actions they can do is just unlimited, really. 
So I wonder maybe before we get into some of the methodology around this, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're, you're wetting my appetite about what some councils are doing, which is similar to other councils. Like it's, you know, there's kind of common themes here. And then there's, there's other stuff which is like rare and quite unique. Is there anything that kind of springs to mind there? Yeah. Across, across both, you know, common or, 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 or very uncommon. The very common and the very uncommon. I think one of the ones that is really exciting to me because I think it's a really good example of councils using their kind of influence and their local trust in the right way is banning uh, high carbon advertising. And that's a project that's sort of like starting to take off across the UK. And it's really exciting. You know, we're, we're at a point now where I think it's like four or five local councils have done that. They've committed and they're beginning the implementation of banning all high carbon advertising across uh, across their area. Is that like advertising space, like council-owned advertising space, like on, on the side of, I don't know, a, a building or a bus yeah. or a shelter? Yeah, exactly. And it can be quite extensive. I think sometimes they say things like, you know, this is red meat, which is particularly bad for the planet. And yeah, that... We've seen so that that kind of ad-free stuff that started in Amsterdam is the first city to have done that. But now we've got places like Liverpool and Norwich, Nottingham, um, starting to get that done. And that's really interesting because we don't really think about how much advertising like influences our life. But SUVs make up like seventy percent of car adverts, and the reason that we haven't seen as much of a big dip in our transport emissions is because of this change from smaller cars to SUVs that has happened over the last 20 years. I'm sure there's other examples. Are there any kind of common themes? I mean, you mentioned the kind of tree cover, but is, is there just stuff that you're just seeing time and time again from councils? Yeah. So it's a bit difficult to talk to action too much because we haven't actually marked the action ones. Um, uh, I will save my little call to action for a bit later, but we're going to be starting that marking process in a few weeks. So I'll maybe say about one which I thought was a really, again, like speaking as a fan of the plan scorecards, maybe more than as an employee of the action scorecards, one of the really interesting things that we found was that of all of the councils that had released a climate action plan, which makes up about 80% of councils, um, 60% of those had committed to lobbying the government for more powers on climate stuff and more like money to spend on climate stuff. And I think that's a really interesting statistic because, you know, that crosses all sorts of political boundaries. It's not just like something about maybe a Labour council wanting to lobby the Conservative government partly to pass the buck. It's not about that. It's an acknowledgement of like local councils do have a lot of influence and they can really like create the world that we need in the local area. But they don't have all the tools that they have in front of them. And they all know that what they need is some more of that support. They need to like reverse that kind of 40% real terms budget cut if they're going to do any of the stuff they need to get done. I just think it's interesting because it goes beyond that blame game thing. I know it's an impossible situation often for councils to get as much as they want done. And that's even, you know, like assuming not every single council wants to get loads done. Um, But also like the house is kind of on fire and taking the action that they have, the kind of political influence action that they have uh, is great. Yeah, and it's, it's it's a good example of other power, you know, kind of soft power you know, on the fringes of, of what they may do. Yeah, because we so often, I think, think about the the more perhaps tangible ones. Matt, you and I work in the energy space, so often what comes into my mind, first of all, is maybe to do with transport or heating or building efficiency. And I think it's great that you've given us some examples that are kind of well outside those spheres. And what really kind of immediately comes to mind is this fact that 
you know, you don't you don't always think about everything, right? So I can imagine that just having these lists could be so useful to the councils in and of themselves to see, actually, we didn't even think about that, but look at what an impact that could have, you know, how can we, how can we do more? Not from a, a you know, a, a lack of desire or motivation, but sometimes possibly from sheer, sheer uh, you know, just ultimately not seeing some of the different actions that may be possible. So yeah, really, really great ones there. As we've been talking, you've been talking about the the plan scorecards and the action scorecards. And I'm wondering if you could just sort of set out a little bit of the difference between them and, and where you are with both of those as well. Yeah, definitely. So the, the plan scorecards, including the name, it looks at the climate action plan. Uh, we were also like we also looked at a few of the plans that were like on the same page as a climate action plan. So say they're like, here's our climate action plan and here's our a climate resilience strategy, which is like directly on the same page, but it's broadly like laser focused on like, this is one document. Um, and it was a snapshot of time as well. This is one document in September, 2021. That's when we marked them. And we looked at every single council's one of that one document. That's kind of the first one. And that was always intended to be a bit of a stepping stone to the action scorecards. So with that first one, it was like obviously a much smaller project, but still unbelievably big for a bit of context of scale, everything that we do, you know, we are a mini tiny organization. Everything that we do is like partly with volunteers and we had over 120 volunteers commit time to just mark plans. Um, I always think that's, again, speaking as a fan, just unbelievable because it's truly the driest form of volunteering I could imagine to sit down and mark plans. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But great. I mean, what that is climate action, right? Local climate action. Yeah, hundred percent. And that's like, and the other, and this is even more amazing. The amount of time that those one hundred and twenty volunteers committed was two thousand two hundred and eighty nine hours. Big, big numbers. So that was kind of our first step. It was almost like a trial to start in the process of working out what the action should look like. So then we spent the last nine months working through speaking to we've spoken to almost 100 different organizations we've done consultations with hundreds of campaigners and and council officers and what we've done is like written up the methodology to mark the action scorecards and they look at action across seven different sections of influence from transport and buildings to uh, communication and governance and that's like 90 questions and we're going to spend the next sort of six months marking them, sending them out to councils, receiving a right of reply and then publishing them. Because Becky and I are bona fide ner- nerds, complete nerds, uh, and when it comes to, as soon as you send, say the word methodology to an academic, they start kind of doing odd things and clicking and clucking. I- I'm just wondering, you know, how in practice, maybe you give an example of a, of a theme uh, on and how a council maybe would score high versus low what what would the markers be looking for here because i know this is this is dry stuff but ultimately if people are going to use those cards and and for them to be useful that needs to mean something yeah absolutely i i'm also i'm a big believer perhaps that we're just perhaps we're just a room of nerds talking but i'm a big believer <laughs> that often the oh, that's fine no we, I, we it's not a belief it's it's a fact <laughs> <laughs> um I really think that the dry stuff is often where the change happens um, because that's where you can make the kind of like smart targets and that's where you can like deliver kind of evidence to change. 
so I'm just going to like pull up one of the sections so I can give you a bit of a flavor on sort of what might be in that section. Mm. So say we'll go for buildings and heating. Very on theme as well, because there'll be many... Yeah, very. Obviously, where energy prices are, but in the news, I think yesterday, talk about the energy relief for uh, commercial organisations. I guess councils are in this. Is going to be cut from from March, potentially. So, Yeah, absolutely. Um, quite intimidating to talk about it with such experts in the room, but we have spoken to a lot of experts, so I'm confident that you'll appreciate this. So this section has um, 12 different questions, and they go from the kind of very specific to the council questions. For example, are the council's operations powered by renewable energy? And then they go up to much more diffuse stuff about, for example, supporting local community renewable energy creation. Um, basically, for each of those questions, it might be that the answer is just a yes and no, or it's perhaps tiered uh, according to sort of how ambitious the thing that they're doing is so for example there's a question called does the council have a target to retrofit all council and managed homes and has it been costed and depending on how ambitious the target is they'll get slightly more or slightly less points and then some of those are also marked not using volunteer data but using national data sets which is really exciting that's different from plan scorecards and it gives us a chance to look at like for example EPC ratings for the whole area, that's something that councils have some influence over, but not loads of influence over. So it's not a particularly heavily weighted question, but it's there that we can look at all the different councils. And then when we come out with this data set, like an individual or the council officer can look at it and say, oh, we actually got like a relatively low score on this because our area is particularly bad for EPC ratings compared to the general public. So like, how do you see, so once once this has been compiled and once you have both the plan scorecards, which you've already got, and now the, the action scorecards, which, you know, I guess one would hope would sort of correlate in some way, but but perhaps not. Like, who do you see using them? How do you see them being used to really help deliver net zero? Is it the council themselves or, or is it other people you see using them? Yeah, great question. The really nice thing about doing the plan scorecards is we've got a sense already of how the action scorecards will be used because we've we've heard back from loads of different people. And the answer is it will be used and we hope that it will be used by both campaigners and councils and also like NGOs and other people in the space. So we heard from Luke McCarthy, who's the green skills specialist at Surrey County Council, that what he was doing, he wanted to understand what other interesting green skills projects Surrey County Council can do. So he looked at the the answers to that single question on green skills projects and reached out to councils that were doing, that had scored really highly on that. And also were in similar situations of being in like a, you know, a, a relatively affluent county council to see like, you know, what would work for our area. Yeah. So so straight away, you know, you, you mentioned earlier councils like like to kind of outdo one another and I guess there's a whole culture of competition, but in the same way, councils are there to support one another and to learn from one another. Because they're not really in direct competition, or at least not not from my perspective. And in that, these scorecards can actually say, look, these guys are the exemplars for X, Y, and Z. And by definition, I bet it creates a centre of gravity, right? Other councils start reaching out to them. That's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. That that thing of like creating networks that kind of like flow out really naturally on issues that you want to work on together um, is a really exciting thing that the scorecards can deliver. And we're hoping that the action scorecards will do the same thing of like, oh, these people are doing particularly well, generally on the buildings and heating section, but particularly on the ones that are connected to 
Briam, for example. We do have a few questions that look at that as a kind of standard and how people are standardizing their their climate projects. Similarly, that means that you you know you unlock that for councils to talk to other councils, but you also unlock that for campaigners to talk to councils and to like take their time to like do the research and, and follow through on the stuff that we've presented to say, oh, you know, like here's the big picture. They are doing this thing. How are they doing it? And then they click through and they learn more about what their kind of neighboring council is doing on things. And then they can take that back to their own council and say, oh, well, we've actually seen that Lee's County Council is doing some really interesting planting stuff in that area. And we really think that Liverpool could do something similar. That's just pulling two random councils out of the air. I can see you've you've got them on your website. Are you seeing anything kind of interesting between, you know, you've got three with stars at the top, Manchester, Solihull and Edinburgh, perhaps no surprise. But I would say I was surprised by some of them that were lower down the list where I thought, you know, knowing what's happening in those areas, you know, I can see Orkney Island Council is quite low down, but there's so much going on in Orkney. I mean, were there any surprises for you when when all of this kind of came together? Yeah, one of the really interesting things that we found is that the majority of our top councils, uh, Manchester being a notable exception, but the majority of our top councils were either minority or coalition governments. And that's really interesting because I think that that's a really good example of like uh, democracy needs scrutiny and councils that are minority or coalition councils do have a much more like rigorous internal scrutiny going on with all of the work that they do. If you want to kind of go beyond the status quo and push forwards on an issue that is deeply urgent, but also doesn't feel very urgent when it's fighting with priorities like, you know, hospital beds. Having that kind of like ongoing scrutiny and pressure is a really good way to get things sort of done. I think Manchester is an interesting example because it's one of those councils that is deeply deeply labour. I don't know if you know much about the area, but it's like ninety one of ninety six councillors are labour. But there's a really lively like local government scrutiny from citizens and I think that's an interesting story of like local people can be the scrutiny if the council is unable to be the scrutiny for itself. Well and and by extension these scorecards give citizens and voters a platform to scrutinise to praise as well but but to criticise and critique maybe where action isn't forthcoming. Yeah absolutely. The other thing is I think that we have seen that plans are not the be all and end all and Places like Orkney might be doing really well because to some extent they're already at implementation. So they they maybe didn't need that one big overarching climate plan. They've already moved on to like getting the stuff done. And I think it will be really, really interesting to take the time to compare how well the plans do against action. Uh, one of the things that we thought was really interesting that we saw from the plans is like over and over again, we found really interesting nuggets of policy and information that people wouldn't have picked up because they're not in these like big shiny documents they're in like slightly horrid looking uh, you know papers from the certain scrutiny committee yeah and it's really exciting to find those nuggets of policy and be able to pull them out for people but also they're sort of failing to communicate them to the general public at the same time so there's there's space always there to kind of be learning now when we look down to the bottom of the table, we noticed that there were there were some people who scored, or some councils hadn't scored well, and then some councils who hadn't scored at all. And I scrolled right down to the bottom. I should note that the caveat here is that these were councils that didn't have an action plan on 20th of September 2021. You had to take a cut-off date. That's, that's the cut-off date. My council is in there, East Renfrewshire Council. 
Okay, so I don't know whether they have one now. I, I should actually check that. But I'm assuming, Hannah, that this is because this isn't mandatory. The, the councils haven't had to release climate action plans, have they? No, they haven't. And yeah, I think that that is the story of councils is like there is this massive amount of variance because there is a real reluctance to put mandatory requirements to do certain things on it. And again, that's something that I totally understand. I feel like lots of councils are somewhat against it because often those like statutory requirements don't come along with the support that needs to come along with it. Um, But what we've continued to see is like as of today, 80% of councils have climate action plans. And that means that 20% 20% don't. And that's a really high number. Uh, and actually of that 20%, just again, from the 20th September 2021, before we get various angry emails, that uh, many of those were Scottish as well. East Renfrewshire Council, Renfrewshire Council, Highland Council, there are others, Clack Manonshire. Were there any patterns here uh, with councils who hadn't had action plans by that date? It's a good question. I'm not sure that I... I'm quite familiar enough with like what those councils have instead. I think that's something to maybe explore later. And councils in England and Scotland both did better than councils in Wales. And I think that that's a interesting thing to sort of like think about and chew on because the kind of broader, higher average scores in Scotland maybe speaks to having that structural national support in place and also like working to improve it. It's interesting then that quite a lot of them also simply didn't have anything out and it will be really interesting to see from the action scorecards, whether Scottish councils continue to score better than English councils. Yeah, a, a bit before I give way on this, it's just this. It's also how do you mark um, councils that haven't had action plans, but are, maybe are doing important climate action. Anyway, that's that's something that will come, become apparent hopefully when you're marking. But are you going to mark all councils regardless of whether they submitted an action? Yeah, plan? absolutely. And we'll just have to find ways around. You know, stuff like when we we did a trial mark of all of the councils, and one of the things that we found uh, was we were looking for like whether or not councils did schemes for compost bins or food waste collection. Food waste collection is something that is about to become mandatory across the country, but. For certain places, that might not be very like useful for that particular area. And we found one of the councils we marked had a wormery, a funded wormery scheme because they weren't able to collect in flats, but they said, oh, you can have a wormery on your flat balcony and we will pay for it. I would love a wormery. It's yeah. the dream. <laughs> it's what we all want. It's the dream. <laughs> <laughs> if we rewind, I mean, it, you may not have an answer to this and that's okay but it was how were you going to rank and score council's actions climate actions that don't have any actual strategy climate strategy so that wormery example is really interesting because that's not mentioned in the climate action plan you know when i went to like find that question it's about like if you as a as a local resident wanted to have your food waste collected is it possible and then you go on kind of like the general website and you know, there it is in like a, the bin section. You don't need a climate action plan to be there to mark that. And I think that's what we'll find a lot of. There's a very small number of questions that rely on the climate action plan, although there are other questions where the climate action plan might be a place where we can find that information. Uh, there are a very small number that are just about like, are they releasing any reports based on the action plan? And are they communicating it to the general public? But otherwise, it's definitely possible to get a really good score without it. I can imagine that this is going to be an absolute mammoth task when you start to collect the data. Just that one example that you gave there of really needing to get into the 
the nuances and the intricacies of those kind of where those actions sit uh, and, and making sure that you find them. I mean, just recognizing that you haven't done all of the scoring yet looking forward um but you know there has been a lot of work that has already happened in this space do you have any kind of key takeaways for what councils could or should be doing to help deliver net zero yeah definitely i think one of the things that councils really need to be prioritizing is like just generally taking an approach of looking beyond the targets and looking beyond the headline into the into the weeds I've mentioned this already earlier today, but there was news broken last week that some councils' tree plantings had something like a 10% survival rate, uh, which is unbelievably small. And that's because the kind of implementation beyond that kind of like, we just got 6,000 trees into the ground simply wasn't there. So looking beyond those kind of big headline targets and looking into what do you actually need to do to get things done is really, really important. Another thing is it's really important for councils to look at what good looks like elsewhere. You know, I said this earlier that some councils are doing it, but it's so, so important to be getting out there and doing it and sort of widening the the scope of what that looks like. You know, it might be, say you're in Trafford Council, you might be really tempted to be like, I'm just going to look at Salford Council and Manchester City Council and just the ones that are directly around me. But actually it might be much more useful to look at the kind of like slightly suburban councils outside of other cities um, and look at them. And I think that's one of the things that we were really pleased about our scorecards. Um, my site helps build these amazing filters. So you can do things like filter by um, indices of deprivation, for example, or filter by whether or not there's a minority government, uh, minority control, or in perhaps you might want to filter by like what part of the country you're in lots of different sort of filters so kind of casting your net a bit wider and looking for what good looks like elsewhere is really really important um another thing that we've seen over and over again is like starting to build that internal expertise is really really powerful whether that be hiring for experts in specific roles one of the scorecard questions that we're going to be asking this year is about whether or not there are if you've got a biodiversity net gain ecologist in the planning department to help you kind of make sure that biodiversity net gain is like correctly implemented in your area uh, but you can also do things like carbon literacy for all of your staff um, and other kind of schemes to make sure that that internal expertise is like as good it could, as it could possibly be and you're not relying on like basically google to like work out what the right thing is to do in your area and the very last thing that i think is really important is like local councils need to understand what that local context looks like from a climate perspective and use that to support the most affected in your community first and that might look like this particular area has an increased flood risk due to climate change it might look like this area has a particularly high like a big community of people who are Pakistani and they're experiencing more emotional distress because of flooding it can look like lots of different things in lots of different areas and it's really important for you to understand all of the ways that climate affects people and the ways that it affects the area uh, in order to like focus your attention correctly and prevent uh, the worst things from happening. And I, I want to just kind of close out our conversation almost back to where we started and certainly where you started kind of your journey in this space, which is how can we, you know, regular people in their own homes that might be listening along thinking, I want to get involved how can we take some of this work, use these scorecards to really help make a difference? Yeah, um, I love to answer this question. I just think 
it's always relentlessly inspiring to me to think about the influence that campaigners can have, the way that campaigners are partners with councils in taking action. And I think the very first thing you need to do when you're sort of starting off this journey is to to know the actors in your local area. So, you know, start with understanding the difference between climate, between council officers and councillors. Understand who else cares about climate in your area, maybe who cares about transport um, and how that intersects with climate stuff and understand sort of who your local councillors are who are the councillors who are supportive of your local causes Um, finding those kind of allies in government in councils is really important the thing that I think is really important for campaigners to understand is councillors aren't like MPs they don't have a lot of time on their hands they usually have other jobs MPs don't have a lot of time on their hands for other reasons but councillors don't really have much of the support there. And I think it can be really transformational to understand that because if you understand that they don't have time to find useful data, they don't have time to think about policy decisions as much as they might like to, even if they're putting in the work, even if they're working 100 hour weeks. So you have to understand that like, to some extent, democracy is always going to be a participation sport. So go out there, send them the scorecards, send them other useful information and find out like how to turn how your council turns an idea into policy and like support them through that entire process. The last thing that I think campaigners can do, and this is my shameless plug, is I think that there's a good exa- there's a good opportunity here to think local and act global. We'll sort of like flip that over. So we, you know, we've got this massive task ahead of us where we're going to be marking the Council Climate Action Scorecards. And you like this is a really good opportunity for activists to volunteer to mark them. We've got like a policy program where you can like hear from experts like Louise Marks Evans, but you can also just come along. We're we're doing we're sending four thousand FOI requests. So if you want to learn more about FOI requests, you can do that, and that gives you a really good opportunity to like see this big picture and see like oh what what is this council doing on this? What is possible? What is the kind of variance that is out there? And that you can then take that back to where you, your council is and, and get them to do something. Hannah, there seems to be a huge opportunity here for citizens, and I'm particularly thinking of my students and others out there, to do some analysis of this data. I'm, I'm assuming the fact that I've been able to download it and it's on Creative Commons license, I'm assuming this data that you've collected is freely available to use for analysis as long as it attribute, uh, you know, attributes your organisation. Is that, is, that, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we will also be doing some research off the back of it ourselves yeah there's 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 huge options in terms of you know how you've disaggregated this data and basically to come out at the end of it with a summary of these are the types of councils or council areas that are doing this type of action this feels like a really important springboard you know going forward in terms of net zero climate action so i just want to say a big thank you to you hannah for, for that fantastic work you're doing we're really excited to see the action scorecard so maybe if if you're willing have you along later on to hear more about that Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great convo. Thank you. So you've been listening to Local Zero. Thanks to our guest for this episode, Hannah Jewell from Climate Emergency UK. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the pod wherever you get your podcasts from and go find and follow us at Local Zero Pod to get involved with discussions over there. If you've got some longer thoughts you want to share, please email us at localzeropod at gmail.com. But for now, thank you and goodbye. Bye. Produced by Bespoken Media.